All right, well, good morning, Discovery. My name is Scott Palmer. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Discovery Christian Church. Uh, so glad you could be with us on week two of our virtual journey together. I am reminded of what Jesus told us in Matthew 18, that where two or more are gathered together in his name, that he is right there with them. And while this is a different you know, style of gathering for us today, it is uh, a gathering nonetheless. We are part of this community together. And so let's just really lean in and embrace how Jesus is really right here with us today. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out so you can follow along with us. Now, before going directly into the passage, I want to back up for a, a few minutes here to just talk about where we've been so far in the book of 1 Samuel. It opens in chapters 1 and 2 with this character named Hannah, and she's sort of the central character that we see in those opening chapters, where she at that time has a particular problem where she is unable to become pregnant and she wants to be able to have a child. And, and um, with this, what we get to see her do is take this before God and really uh, take her, her uh, heart's desire and just really pour that out before the Lord. And in her story and in her situation, um, which is you know very specific to hers, not uh, for everyone, is that the Lord then decides to meet her in this, and she's able to have a child named Samuel, uh, who we will find out more about later on. Um, and so her story starts with a really difficult situation, and it ends in uh, rejoicing. We also get introduced to these characters uh, named Eli and his two sons, and they are the religious leadership going on in Israel at the time. And we kind of are, are just, you know, introduced to the idea that something's a little bit amiss or something is not quite right with their leadership. So as we transition into chapter three, we find Samuel being called by God. And this is the beginning of the transition of leadership from Eli and his sons to Samuel. Um, and before the book picks up that narrative further in chapter seven, it kind of takes a side detour into chapters four through six with what I would call three arc narratives. And the arc being uh, what Steve referred to a couple weeks back as this magic box, if you will. Um, it really symbolized the uh, presence of God and was a very central uh, portion of the worship that Israel had with God. So it really symbolized his presence being there with them. In chapter four, there is a battle that takes place where the ark is brought into the battle and Israel is defeated and the ark goes into captivity. And this is the first narrative. The second narrative is what happens with the ark while it's in the Philistine territory in this captivity. And we see they place it before their God in his temple. And several times it falls uh, or, or their, their god, their idol, falls before the ark, and then it eventually breaks into pieces. And we find also that there is a plague or an outbreak that occurs within their cities. Um, not you know, terribly unlike where we are at the moment, that they have this panic that then begins to set in as far as what are we doing here we're all being afflicted and we don't know what to do. And so they begin this process of taking the ark and moving it from one city to the next, trying to rid themselves of this problem that they are having. And they find that doesn't work out so well. And so we enter into chapter six here today that is going to really um, center around two responses. 
The first being the response of the Philistines, where they decide, let's send this thing away from us, get it out of our territory altogether. And the second being the response of the people of Israel once this comes back to them. And then the story will return uh, to Samuel in chapter 7. Now, a few things to know about Israel and to set the stage for the passage today is they did have pretty massive military losses that took place. Back in chapter 4, we saw that they had already lost 4,000 men in battle when they then decided, hey, let's bring the ark along with us. And this was not because God had called them in some way to do this, but because they were looking for God to kind of support what they had already decided to do. And this resulted in them leading, uh, losing 30,000 more troops and losing the Ark of God. And this is going to create somewhat of an identity crisis, or I would assume that it has to, because if you have this special relationship with God and this central instrument of God's presence and your worship of God is now removed from your presence for a period of seven months, they have to have been going through a process of wondering, what does this mean for us? How does this make us the people of God? What do we do? Finally, as I mentioned before, Eli and his sons were the ones leading Israel at that time. They all die in chapter 4. And what happens here is while they may not have been especially great leaders, this does create a, a huge void in their leadership structure to have the top three individuals suddenly all wiped out. And you can imagine in any organization or nation, even today, you remove the top three leaders, that's going to create a problem. Prior to Eli, there was a pattern that Israel had of having these judges, and whenever they had a judge, things were kind of okay. But then when they didn't have a judge, Israel kind of resulted to kind of everyone doing whatever they thought was the right thing to do or just whatever they wanted to do. And the end of the book of Judges puts it this way, saying, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so there's a very real um, chance that they could revert back to this kind of structure of saying, well, let's each just do what works best for us. Now, in today's passage and in this overall narrative, we see three central ideas here. First, they're in a pretty dire situation that we could say no military, no uh, presence of God through the ark, no um, leadership structure that's in place. So they're pretty hopeless at this point. Um, and we're going to see in today's passage that hope starts to get restored as the ark then comes back to them. We also get to grapple with this idea of what it means that when man tries to do what man wants to do versus God doing things independent of man, not uh, coming along and just saying, hey, whatever you've decided, I'll just support that. But God is moving in his own ways as well um, that are frankly greater than ours. Um, finally, we get this sense that there is going to be some restoration. And we will see that more towards the end and as this transitions into chapter 7. But it's really important to understand that restoration is not simply saying things are going back to the way that they were before by bringing the ark back. Because there was already some, some you know, problems there within the religious worship at that time. It is God saying, I want to restore things to the way that they were always intended to be in the first place. So I know that's kind of a, a long backdrop, but let's go ahead and jump into today's passage. So uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 read, When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, 
What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. And this is a very natural response. They have this problem that's taking place in their land. So right away, they decide, we need to get rid of this. How can we do that? Um, they don't have a relationship with God. So for them, this is probably more of a war trophy that symbolizes their military might, their cultural superiority over uh, Israel. And so there's not a whole lot of reason for them to want to keep this around. Continuing, though, in verse 3, they answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. So this is their first part of their plan. They make these just beautiful rats and tumors. So just imagine if you want someone giving these to you, uh, what a lovely, lovely gift that would be. Um, but Really what's important here to understand is that they, they recognize there's some sense of guilt going on, that maybe they've done something wrong. They, they may not fully know or understand what that is, given that they don't know who God is. Uh, but they, they are kind of trying to go along and say, what is it that we need to do? And there's an acknowledgement of we have done something wrong. We want to get this plague off of us. How do we do this? So they go about it as best as they can, right? Uh, deciding, hey, we've got you know, these problems running rampant through here, so this must be what we are wanting to do uh, in order to appease their God, if you will. Um, they are really reflecting that this is a widespread problem. If this had just been in one small place, they may not have done this. But because it was so widespread, uh, they're really panicking about this and kind of going, all right, what do we do? We come into verse 6, and this very odd statement is made here. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When he treated them harshly, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? And I think this is really important for two reasons. One, it shows that the Philistines were intimately familiar with the history of Israel. They know the stories. They know what has taken place. Maybe in some ways a little bit better than Israel does at this time. They recognize there is a danger here to us doing things in a certain way if we try to be stubborn and hang on to this. At the same time, though, uh, what this really does is it um, uh, shows that there may be a break in the leadership here, that they may not all be on the same page as far as uh, acknowledging this is what is causing the problem in the first place. If they were not um, you know, all on the same page, then you would ask a question, well, why, would we, why are we hardening our hearts? That suggests someone is in opposition here, maybe not... Uh, fully on board with this. And some other things that we will see in the text here in a moment would also point us in that direction. So they come up with this plan, right, in which uh, we've already talked about the first part. We make these rats, we make these tumors. Now their second part of the plan is how are we actually going to get this back to the people of Israel? And so in verses 7 through 11, um, what we find out is they say, now then get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked, 
hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. And then in verses 10 and 11, it talks about how they then go on and do this. So a couple things here, they make it basically a test, right? They, they say, listen, since there may be some uncertainty around what's the cause of this, let's have this test. We've got our cart, we've got these cows, and if they go directly to this one town in Israel, then that means this was from Israel's God. And uh, we're, we're clear to, you know, have it returned there, and hopefully that'll heal everything and we'll be done with it. On the other hand, if the cows do anything else, they're going to say, listen, this is totally by random chance, uh, and we can go back and reclaim our war trophy there and still know how mighty and superior we are uh, over Israel. So what's really interesting, too, is they stack the deck to try to make that second um, option be the one that occurs. They do this by making sure to put cows there that have never done this before, and by making sure that these cows themselves uh, have calves so that they would naturally want to stay. So not only would they be inexperienced at this, but they would have a, something pulling them back. Verse 12, though, reads, the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So this becomes fairly um, clear then, right? Like they they made their test. We then see the result here is clear. Cows went straight there. They've got their answer. Now, all of these places may not mean a whole lot to you, so we have a map uh, to point out a little bit of what was going on here. In the top right of your screen, you'll see this place called Shiloh. This is where the ark would have been before it went into captivity. If we follow it along to the left, we see where it got captured, and then it goes down to the bottom left to one of the Philistine cities where plagues are happening, and then they move it over to another one called Gath, same thing. They then send it up to Ekron, and that's where they say, hey, we've had enough of this, and they send it over to Beth Shemesh. Now, you can see the red line there is the border between the Philistine territory and Israel, so it gives you a little bit of sense of where things are and, and where they've been going. Uh, Beth Shemesh becomes kind of an interesting uh, place for three reasons. The first being that, as you can see on this map here, it is still relatively close to Ekron, but seven miles is a pretty long distance to go if you are cows and you're looking to make a definitive test. And so the fact that they do go there the whole way really does make this quite definitive. If it had been a mile, maybe something could have happened by chance. They would have wanted to run another test or something. But seven miles tells us clearly, definitively, this is what's happening. It also tells us, though, here that we have some uh, potential border issues that are going on. And if you think about border issues that happen in our own country today, uh, probably, you know, it's likely that a lot of those were existing there at the same time as well. Thinking back to what we said a moment ago, that there um, was probably not much, if any, standing military going on in Israel at the time, being on a border may not be the place you want to be. It may not be a particularly safe location. For all we know, they've been raided several more times by the Philistines, and so they could be living in a lot of fear 
uh, at this time. Maybe they've had their, their goods stolen, their people you know, killed, or different things. So it's really hard to say what exactly is taking place, only to say maybe not the first place you would want to be if you are at war with a, a country that just kind of dominated you. But something else that I think is particularly interesting here is that Beth Shemesh is a town of priests. And we learn this in the book of Joshua, that after uh, the conquest of Israel, when they divide up the land, we see that um, the, the land is given into different families and different tribes, but there are certain towns that are set aside for uh, priests for the family of Aaron and his descendants, and that was the priestly line. And so if you look in Joshua 21, verse 16, we see Beth Shemesh listed there as one of these towns. And so really, if you're going to send the ark somewhere, if you're going to choose a location, a people that you want to send it to, you're going to want to send it to those who are of the priestly line, who should have a pretty strong understanding of the significance of the ark returning, a, a strong understanding of what to do with the ark and how to uh, you know work within this and how to worship God once it returns. So it's pretty close to a, a, an ideal or great place to have this sent. Now we move from what the Philistines have done to the Israelites and their reaction, and we see that this comes in two different phases. In verses 13 to 16, I'll just summarize it here, we see that as the ark comes back, they're in the middle of harvesting and they stop what they're doing and they rejoice over this here. They take the, the um, cart and they break it apart and they use uh, the wood and the cows there to go ahead and make an offering to God and they're celebrating. And it's just kind of a great thing that happens for them. Um, it's really, really wonderful to see that they are so responsive to this here um, because up until this point in time, with the ark being gone, outside of Eli dying and his daughter-in-law going into early labor, there's no indication ever given that anyone's particularly bothered or upset that the ark has left Israel. Uh, there's, there's no uh, words here that suggest anyone is praying their guts out the way Hannah would have. There's no suggestion that anyone is fasting or seeking the Lord, or that even a, a conversation may have been taking place somewhere amongst people saying, how can we get this back? So there's, it's great to see that they are this way. At the same time, though, we do have to acknowledge those other things there, that they, when this comes back at the harvest, it is also suggestive that there is a certain amount of that they are kind of carrying on with their lives as normal. They are just doing a little bit of, hey, this is how it was. Um, we just need to keep going. And so you do have to wonder, what is the relationship with God at this point in time? I would argue that they probably didn't expect to see the ark again, um, but they do recognize its importance. And so that is a really good thing. Um, they did not have, it's not in man's will or man's power to go and return the ark, right? They, they instead have it come back to them independent of anything that they have done. Now we do see as we move further down into verse 19 that there is another reaction that takes place. And it says, God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, 
the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. And we find that um, in the beginning verses of chapter 7, the other inhabitants do take it, and it, the Ark stays there for 20 years, and they thrive, and everything seems to go particularly well for them. Uh, this is a really tough passage for us to read, because at least for me, when I read this, I think, wow, that's a lot of people dying, and it, the only thing it records happening is that they looked into the Ark. What is God doing here? Is he being really harsh? Um, you know, it's something for us to really think about and to wrestle with. Um, a few things that I would point out is that, one, this may be showing a lack of familiarity uh, with God or a lack of reverence or obedience to his ways. And this, again, coming from priests who really ought to know better. Um, I would also point out, though, too, that oftentimes we still want to approach God in our ways. We still want God on our terms. And for them, this, that may be what this has looked like. Hey, we want God and God's presence here, but we want to be able to look into the ark. We want to be able to do it the way that we want to. And so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, very appropriate, though, that they are mourning this loss of life. Uh, I think that's a very good thing to see taking place there. But I also really, really wish that I would have seen uh, some more things here that would su suggest that they would say, hey, just like the Philistines said, hey, we've done something and we need to send a guilt offering or whatever, really wish we would have seen them lean in here and say, God, we've apparently done something wrong. And while we may not know what that is, lead us, Lord, because we, we do want your presence here with us. Um, instead, they ultimately do the same thing the Philistines do. They have this tragedy occur. They take the ark and say, we've got to get this away from us, right? Bad things are happening. And so they, they take this symbol of God's presence and they push him away. And they literally send it from a town of priests to a town without priests, where, as I mentioned, it does thrive. And that's where the text leaves us for today. That's the end of this story here. These, these three ark narratives that come this way uh, really give us the sense of God's ark leaving Israel for a time and then coming back. But God has something that he is up to and something that he's doing, and he's looking to restore that right relationship with him in Israel. And so I will remind us these three central themes. They started off in a hopeless situation. There was no ark, no leadership, probably no military, and by the end, this ark has returned. As we'll see in next week's uh, um, section, we're going to start to see a strengthening of that leadership of Samuel, and, and we'll start to see that return as well. We do see that as man uh, has chosen to say, let's take the ark into battle, and that had disastrous results. And then man says, hey, let's go ahead and choose to approach God on our terms and look into the ark. This too has disastrous results. But yet God, without the help of, of the Israelites, uh, orchestrates things to bring the ark back into Israel. It's his will that ultimately reigns supreme. And then finally, again, this restoration is there, not just with bringing it back, but bringing it back with the hint that we're going to change things here. We're going to bring it back to the way it's ultimately intended to be so people don't just get to do whatever it is they want to do. A few verses that stick out uh, that I'd also like to share here. One on the idea of hope comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. And this is somewhat summarizes uh, Israel's history up to this point in time. But it writes, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. 
return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And Israel has this continuing pattern of not following God, of just kind of turning away, doing whatever they want, much as uh, we often do, you know, and struggle with in modern day as well. And yet God goes out of his way to make this promise to them. If you return to me, I will return to you. And that's a very hopeful, beautiful thing to do because there's nothing requiring him to do that. And so for each of us listening today, one thing we can take from this is know that God makes that same promise to each one of us today. That if we are feeling lost or without hope or that we've wandered too far, you can always return to the Lord and know that he too will return to you. Even more beautiful is that in our passage today, we see no indication that Israel tries to return to the Lord, and yet God goes out of his way to still return the ark and still is enacting a plan to strengthen up and return this great relationship with Israel. That is good news, and that is both hope and mercy. When we look at God's will, we see from Zechariah 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, where it reads, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And this, uh, Zerubbabel was a leader of Israel at that time when they were rebuilding Jerusalem. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I think this is a, just a great reminder that there are a lot of things that we want to do, but it's ultimately not about us. It's not about us enacting our will. It's not by our strength or by our might or power or wisdom or resources or any of those things. But the transformation that we want to see come about, the hope, the restoration, it's ultimately going to come because of God and God's will. And so I would encourage each one of us today to seek after God and to submit these things to him instead of trying to do things strictly on our own, though we may have some role to play in that as well, is to lean into God and say, I want to follow your will. Finally, this reminds me of a song. Um, if you really, really want to hear some inspiring music, there is just a phenomenal musician. His name is Josh Garrels, um, and he has this song called Rise. And in this song, this is uh, the lyrics to the chorus where he sings, Though they may surround me like lions and crush me on all sides, I may fall, but I will rise. Not by my might or my power or by the strength of swords, but only through your love, my Lord. All that's lost will be restored. I think that this is just phenomenal. This is beautiful. It's something that we should all really consider here. We may be surrounded. We may be without hope in ways, and we may feel crushed, and we may have situations where we struggle, and yet not through our own abilities, but through God's power are we going to make it through to the other side? Are we going to be restored? Israel was severely beaten down. Again, no military, no leaders, um, um, no, no, you know, uh, anything really going on for them, no ark. And yet we start to see this restoration beginning to take place because of what God had done for them. And so I want to leave us with these uh, final questions and thoughts, things for each of us to think about how they apply in our lives. First of all, where are you needing hope right now? Truth is, is that I think a lot of us are concerned or worried about the coronavirus, and that is certainly uh, something for us to really think about. Where's our hope within that, but also in other areas of our lives too? Um, so 
I would love to encourage each of us to spend time thinking about this. Spend time today praying about this and pouring your heart out to God about the hope that you need and see where he will meet you in this. Second, where have you been striving to make something happen on your own? Again, it's easy for us to want to take control of the situation and say, oh, it's up to me or it's up to my powers and abilities. I know that God will use us, so we may have a role to play, but submit this to God and to his will and, and invite him in and ask him, Lord, will you help us in this area? I'm trying to, I want to see this good thing happen and just come and see, taste and see of the goodness of the Lord there. Finally, I would say, where have you limited God and put him in a box? Just as Israelites really saw God constrained to this ark, this magic box, oftentimes we do the same thing. We limit who we see God to be and what we think God is capable of doing. And I want us to really expand beyond that and say, so who is God and what is he able to do in my situation right now? in our nation's situation, in our world situation right now. What is it that I, I believe God can do? Because he can do so much more than we can even imagine. And so I would encourage us, take this before the Lord so that we can say, God, I want a bigger picture of you. I want a bigger vision of you. Help me to see your goodness. So will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to still gather together and to be your people. We thank you, Lord, that even in this time of social distancing and all of the, the panic and the worries and concerns that are just consuming our lives right now, that you are still good and you are still here with us. That those are promises, Lord, that we can hold on to. And we just ask, Lord, that you would bless us and be with us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit right now, right in these places that we are each gathered in at the moment. Um, would you help us, Lord, to really just trust in you, to place our hope in you in these really difficult times, to seek after your will, and to look forward to the restoration that you have in place. Lord, would you speak to us about ways that we can be good news to our neighbors, ways that we can love that we can uh, just experience generosity and express that with other people. Move in us, Lord, and help us to know what you would have us do. We ask for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.